Community radio is more than radio. WJFF Radio Catskill brings us together to be informed, entertained, and enlightened. What you get here is greater than what you'll find on social media or streaming services. That's because Radio Catskill is committed to community first. I'm Brad Mann, host of Neonatal Pulse, here to remind you that you rely on this station for news, music, and culture. Please support us now with a financial contribution at WJFFradio.org. WJFF's fabulous online auction starts August 10th. Here's a great opportunity to support local businesses and Radio Catskill. Purchase a gift certificate from your favorite restaurant or other amazing local establishment. Then donate it to WJFF's fabulous online auction. To donate, call 845-482-4141 or email auction at wjffradio.org. Denied a request by Oregon's Attorney General to restrict federal law enforcement activities. At the same time, the Trump administration is vowing to send thousands of federal agents to quell violent crime in other cities, including Albuquerque, New Mexico, where Mayor Tim Keller says he sees it as more of a political move. It's just because of the president's own words. So the day before he announced this, he explicitly said he was targeting uh, progressive mayors uh, for the campaign and was trying to connect that to challenges with law enforcement. The mayor says Albuquerque welcomes partners to fight crime, but he's concerned about the potential of federal agents going after protesters or immigrants. The eye of Hurricane Hannah is approaching South Texas between Corpus Christi and Brownsville. It's expected to make landfall in just hours. Just across the border, asylum seekers at a migrant camp are also bracing for Hannah, as Reynaldo Leanos, Jr. of Texas Public Radio, reports. About a thousand asylum seekers are living in tents at a migrant camp in Matamoros, Mexico, across the Rio Grande from Brownsville, Texas. Some have been living there for almost a year as they wait for their immigration court case to unfold in U.S. immigration court. A migrant at the camp who didn't want his name used because he didn't want to jeopardize his case says they're trying to prepare for the hurricane as best they can. He spoke by telephone from the camp. He says they're adding nylon to their tents to try to further protect themselves from the rain and that they're going to elevate the tents nearest the river. An evacuation route has already been established. I'm Reynaldo Llanos Jr. in Mission. The Trump administration is facing multiple federal lawsuits over a memo President Trump signed this week about the census. As NPR's Hansi Lo Wong reports, the memo is aimed at changing who is included in the census numbers that determine each state's share of congressional seats. The 14th Amendment requires accounting of the whole number of persons in each state. But President Trump signed a memo calling for unauthorized immigrants to be excluded not from the census in general, but specifically from the count used to redistribute seats in Congress. Attorneys with the ACLU and other legal groups are representing immigrant rights groups in one of the lawsuits against the memo. They allege the move is not only unconstitutional, but also a discriminatory attack on immigrants. Their attorneys write, quote, government action denying the personhood of people living in the United States echoes the darkest chapters of American constitutional history. The Justice Department declined to comment on the lawsuit. Hansi Luang, NPR News, New York. This is NPR News. Staff at the U.S. consulate in Chengdu, China, are preparing to leave. Beijing has ordered it to shutter after Washington ordered China to close its consulate in Houston, which Secretary of State Mike Pompeo calls a hub for spying and theft of intellectual property. The U.S. Environmental Protection Agency has announced a move aimed at boosting domestic uranium production. Wyoming Public Radio's Cooper McKim has details. The primary form of uranium extraction is called in situ mining, a process regulated by the EPA. But in a move aimed at reducing regulatory hurdles, EPA will cede regulatory oversight to the Nuclear Regulatory Commission. Natural Resources Defense Council's Jeff Fettis says the EPA is turning a blind eye to the pollution caused by the mining technique. This is such a dangerous practice that oxidizes metals right off the rock. It changes the groundwater chemistry literally, so you have to watch over a long period of time, and that's not required now. 
EPA Administrator Andrew Wheeler says the action doesn't remove any mining safeguards adopted by the states. For NPR News, I'm Cooper McKim. Longtime television personality and host Regis Philbin has died after a 60-year career. His family says he died last night of natural causes at the age of 88. And Fleetwood Mac co-founder and guitarist Peter Green has died. He's considered one of the best British blues guitarists of the 60s. He was 73. I'm Barbara Klein, NPR News. Support for NPR comes from NPR stations. Other contributors include Capital One. Capital One's banking app lets people manage their money anytime, anywhere. Capital One. This is banking reimagined. What's in your wallet? Capital One N.A. Today on the Janice Adams Show, Sharon Robinson, author, educational consultant, daughter of baseball great and civil rights movement icon, Jackie Robinson. She is also the creator of Breaking Barriers, a baseball-themed character education curriculum that empowers students to face obstacles in their lives. Since 1997, the program has reached over 22 million students and 2.9 million educators. After 22 years of helping children find their voices, now with her latest book for young adults, she writes about the year that changed her life, and the nation, the year she, as a 13-year-old girl, found her voice. Here's Sharon reading from the opening chapter of Child of the Dream, a memoir of 1963. Tomorrow is my birthday. I'm turning 13, which makes today, January 12th, 1963, the very last day of me not being a teenager. I stare at myself in the full-length mirror attached to my closet door. I see Dad's smile and Mom's eyes and nose. The gap between my front teeth is distinctly mine. So is being nearsighted. I squint at the rest of my reflection, the way my body has started to curve the way my skin breaks out around my forehead. There's a look of concern on my face. Honestly, I'm worried about tomorrow. My older brother, Jackie Jr., started to rebel once he became a teenager. I assume this will happen to me next. Maybe it already has. I shut the door to my walk-in closet and get dressed for the day in jeans and a T-shirt. It's best that I thoroughly enjoy these final hours before descending into teenage darkness, I think to myself. I decide to ride Diamond, my beautiful black-and-white horse with a white diamond shape on his dark black muzzle. He is my four-legged best friend. Together we push boundaries and release the restlessness that's buried deep inside both of us. Riding Diamond is my definition of freedom. Sharon, what made you decide to write this book? Janice, most of my uh, professional life, I've worked with children on finding their voice. And I I wanted to find a way to share the Children's March in Birmingham, Alabama, with children today, and also talk about um, the, the importance of finding your voice. And that's why I wrote Child of a Dream, a memoir of 1963. Why did 63 stand out so much for you? I turned 13 that year, and I was very fearful of entering adolescence. I'd watched my brother sort of descend into a darkness in adolescence, and I was like, oh, God, I'm next. So it um, was an important year for me uh, in in my personal development, Mm -hmm. but it was also important because that's the year I came to understand the civil rights movement, and began to find my voice around it. Here's a clip that I'd like you to hear. Today, I have stood where once Jefferson Davis stood and took an oath to my people. It is very appropriate that from this cradle of the Confederacy, this very heart of the great Anglo-Saxon Southland, 
That's the day we sound the drum for freedom. And I say segregation now, segregation tomorrow, and segregation forever. Mm. Still chilling to hear it. Yeah. George Wallace speaking in 1963, responding to the growing civil rights movement, justifiably growing civil rights movement. It was the day after my birthday, Janice. I was watching this, him give this speech, his inaugural address on television at the six on the six o'clock news with my mom and grandmother. Mm. And it, it just, um, to me, it was like a declaration of war. Yeah. And my dad was in the hospital, so I couldn't really talk about it with him at that point. Um, I had to wait until he came out of the hospital. But when he did, he sort of explained, you know, that it was a kind of a war, but not exactly a war. A kind of a war, but not exactly a war. And Meaning I mean, war, he said, you know, was you, you have weapons on both sides, and, you know, there's a real, that kind of a battle. But this was going, to, this was certainly a declaration of a battle. Yes. To a 13-year-old mind at that point, before you heard those words from George Wallace, listen to this clip and tell me what this evokes for you. (laughs) Come on, baby! Let's do the twist! Chevy Checker. Oh, God, that's a good memory. That's the first time my brother Jackie, my older brother, who I adored, asked me to dance. He put it on, and we were in the living room, and he just pulled me into a dance, and we started twisting. And it was so fun because my brother and I didn't do that. We didn't dance together. But this song just lifted you up and got you moving, and so it's a great memory. So this is the contrast. This is a a young girl coming into herself with her family, (laughs) finding her way. And then George Wallace tells her what he thinks her way should be. Is that what it was? Yes. Yes, it is quite a contrast. And for you coming from the family that you came from, what was it? that your family embodied at this particular time? My dad was a professional baseball player, but this is, this is his retirement era from Major League Baseball. But he had stepped very um, comfortably into the civil rights movement. He had been an activist, I'd say, all of his life, from when he was a child in, in Pasadena, California. His army, when, when time when, when he refused to move to the back of the bus in, a, in, a, in the Jim Crow South. And, you know, just um, battles as a young man in Pasadena um, with a number of confrontations uh, when being stopped by the police or, for you know, whatever it is that happened to him as a teenager, things we hear about today. So my dad had always been an activist, um, but post when he stopped playing baseball, he brought that activism home to our dining room table. Now we could have regular dinners with him and count on him coming home most nights and count on discussions about the civil rights movement um, at our dining room table. Uh, so it was, um, and then it came to the point where we would ask him, can we go south with him and go on marches? And he, he would say, just give me, you know, let me work this through. Give me a time. I'll figure it out. He wanted the whole family to be involved. And in 1963, he found a way. What was that way? Well, he came back from Birmingham after the children's, um, having gone down to the children's crusade. And he came back and he told um, us that at the dining room table, he said, you know, um, I want you to find work that you love and keep God and family as a priority. But we as a family are going to have a family mission as well. And that family mission is going to be one of activism. And that's when he laid out the first thing, he and my mom laid out that the first thing we were going to do as a family was to have start having jazz concerts at our home. Now, my dad was a fundraiser primarily for the movement. He certainly did a lot of motivational speeches and went on, went on marches and also did work, um, spoke at voter registration drives. But his real asset um, was his ability to raise funds. 
So, um, and Dr. King, he he started off initially with NAACP, moved into raising funds for Dr. King in 1962. Uh, he was a Dr. King asked him to uh, to raise funds for the bomb churches to kind of head that fundraising effort, uh, and then he started working raising funds for Birmingham during the March period when they needed money for to get the um, to, to, pay, to pay off bonds, you know, the people at the marches had that had gone to jail. They needed to be able to pay their bonds. Isn't Birmingham in Alabama where that mean governor lives? I ask as I try to understand what's going on. That's correct, Dad says. Dr. King is there to help out the local leaders, like Reverend Shuttlesworth, who leads a group called the Alabama Christian Movement for Human Rights. Earlier this year, Dr. King, Reverend Shuttlesworth, Reverend Abernathy, Reverend Wyatt T. Walker, and Reverend Andrew Young met to discuss a campaign to end segregation in downtown Birmingham. All the men are members of the Southern Christian Leadership Conference. I joined Martin last year in Birmingham to speak at an SELC dinner. Martin considers Birmingham the most segregated city in the United States, with good reason. The black churches there have been bombed so much, they call the city Bombingham. Reverend Shuttlesworth Church alone has been bombed three times. It's terrible. Hearing about the bombs terrifies me. How can people be so cruel? It sounds to me like Negroes are being forced to stay in a tiny corner of the city. How are they supposed to survive? I look to Dad for answers. There are plenty of Negro-owned businesses. That's how the Negro community has survived. There are small grocery stores, restaurants, churches, newspapers, funeral homes, Dad explains. Oh, I say. It reminds me of Stanford's West Side, with its black hair salon, barbershop, pool hall, and schools where the classrooms and hallways are filled with black students. Negroes can walk into a white beauty shop in downtown Stanford, but they'll be told, we don't do black hair. That's the way it is throughout the South. Blacks and whites are kept separated by laws and customs. And it's wrong. That's why the civil rights movement is so important, Dad says. That's also why Dr. King chose to have his demonstration on Good Friday. He's hoping to spread the word and get national attention for the crisis in race relations throughout the South. To force Americans to understand how bad things really are, Mom adds. Jack, tell Sharon what Dr. King is trying to accomplish in Birmingham. It's important, Mom says. The goal is to desegregate businesses in downtown Birmingham, Dad tells us. There are other demands, important ones, like getting a committee together to work out school desegregation. So far, they have been ignored. Black people still cannot eat at lunch counters there in the downtown area. I picture myself being told that I can't get a milkshake at the soda fountain. I'd be mad. It just isn't right. Let's start back. You said that your dad came up with a family mission. Your dad and mom came up with a family mission. What specifically was it? Okay. So the first thing was we, a jazz concert. So he said we're going to have a jazz concert at our home, which is going to be a fundraiser. And we divided up the work. So mom was overall directress, and she was work. She and dad were working with a committee in New York about getting the artists. Um, we had various um, family friends and also associates. Um, Ellen Dickerson from Stanford, Connecticut. You know, she was very primary from the Stanford end to develop a, a, a core work group of volunteers. Uh, and that, that then Dad said and Mom said that uh, Dave and I would be selling hot dogs and sodas, and he, he, Dad and Jackie would be uh, greeting the guests and um, helping them park their cars. So everybody had a role to play on this jazz day. And then it started off with us cleaning our rooms to have them ready for the artists to be able to change. You know, it's just a, a amazing family experience, a volunteer experience, and certainly um, we hosted a um, just a great crowd of people. 
on our lawn. And then after that, uh, the next thing was they told us that we were going as a family to the March on Washington. So we had been asking to go on a march. And Dad had been saying, wait, wait, I'm you know, going to find a way. So this was our big moment as a family to actually participate in a march, participate in the civil rights movement on that level. And so we traveled to Washington, D.C. in August. And then in, after that, Dr. King asked Dad to do another jazz concert for him. And he did. we did one like shortly after the March on Washington in Stamp in at our home in Stanford, Connecticut. And at that one, Dr. King actually came himself. Mm. And it was just an amazing experience. You speak of this house in Stanford, Connecticut, but this is a very iconic house. It came to be because of your family, a very iconic house. Tell us about the house itself. When my dad was still playing for the Brooklyn Dodgers, we lived in Queens, New York. And we lived in a lovely house in a great community, but dad wanted privacy. Dad and mom wanted more privacy. So they went looking for land and a, or a home on land in Connecticut because Connecticut would allow him to still get to the ballpark within an hour. So that was a, a critical, critical distinction in, in their thinking. Connecticut had the land. It was a good distance from uh, the ballpark. So they went looking for, for property, and every time they would find a property they wanted or a house that they wanted, it would su- suddenly be off the market. So they ran into housing discrimination. Mm-hmm. Um, an, a neighbor and a dear and person who came, became a dear friend, Andrea Simon, uh, stepped in. She had the power and authority in Stanford to be able to mobilize um, both the from the ministers and and real estate people and and people that could help us find this house. So uh-huh. here we have the family of Jackie Robinson, this national icon, internationally known icon for having broken the color line in baseball. But even that family is still struggling with the color line in terms of where you're actually going to be able to live with your family. Correct. And so you come to Connecticut, which Mm -hmm. I know from personal experience is a state which at that time still had restrictive covenants in the deeds I don't know if your house did, but... The one we purchased? Yes. No, actually the house was... um, The house was actually under construction, so it wasn't a finished product. Mm -hmm. It was was like a spec house. Um, So the the family came... Mom Mom and Dad came in at a point where they could still design portions of the house, um, so it wasn't actually owned by anyone else. It was definitely in North Stanford. And North Stanford, just to once again give the character uh-huh. of the time and the right. environment in which you were living, North Stanford uh-huh. is right next to Darien, Connecticut, which is the place on which the story of the gentleman's agreement is modeled. This very restrictive society in which at that point no Jews were allowed, as it's told Mm -hmm. in the story, and definitely no blacks or other people of color were allowed. So Mm -hmm. just to give people uh, a sense of what this was about, that was the environment and the time. So your celebrity did not protect you from that Mm -hmm. necessarily. No, Absolutely not. That's what people need to understand so that when they refer, when they conflate poverty and racism, racism is across the board. Right. Across the board. Absolutely. Yes. So um, the the property was perfect for us because they, it was bordered on, on two sides by the reservoir and deep woods before you got to the water section. And the house itself sat in the middle of six acres, and was so it was quite a ways back from the the road, and people would you know not be able to just drive into our driveway uh, and stop and and look or take pictures, as was the experience when we lived in Queens. So it was a, a perfect um, you know, and then it also sat on water, which was 
my mother wanted that more than anybody to be able to be right on water. So the property sat on water on a hill in the middle of these six acres of, of land. So when your family, with its privilege, decides to hold this concert on -hmm. that land, on that property, how do they deal with the neighbors about actually being able to pull that off? Well, actually, the neighbors were thrilled. The neighbors, everybody, you know, the the lake had multiple owners living on the lake. So, you know, it was a fairly large lake. And they they loved the concert as much as as anyone. So they also, they volunteered. They welcomed it. They loved the concept of raising money for the civil rights movement and for Dr. King, particularly after the march on Washington. You know, they made we had more people than ever in our September concert because now they understood who they they felt connected in a different way to Dr. King. And when we come back, more with our guest, Sharon Robinson, author of Child of the Dream, a memoir of 1963. We have been talking about her father, Jackie Robinson. When we come back, we will talk about her two extraordinary parents. More after the break. Hello, this is Francisco Mora Catholic. Please join me listening to Living Jazz with St. Peterson at WJFF 90.5 FM. In times of uncertainty, you might be listening to Radio Catskill a little bit more than usual. That's because you know you can come here for essential information as well as comfort and community. I'm Doug Sandberg, host of WJFF's Let's Talk Vets. The team at this station is committed to keeping you connected with the information you need as well as grounded when things feel less stable, thanks to the generous support of listeners like you. Please give at WJFFradio.org now to keep it going. We're back with our guest, Sharon Robinson. We're speaking about her new book, Child of the Dream, a memoir of 1963. This year, Sharon, 1963, which is so pivotal, you said it was the year you turned 13. George Wallace had already laid down the gauntlet for racists throughout the country, segregation now, segregation tomorrow, segregation forever. Dr. King goes to Birmingham because black folks are saying, oh, no, you don't. This will not be forever. We have had it. And he is arrested. I want you to listen to this clip. Willingness to go to jail will make jobs possible for everybody else who will finish school. Negroes going to school, we finish school and can't get any jobs down here anyway. They throw us in the worst position. And whether we have high school training or not, are beyond that. We are still the last tide in the first five. So what we've got to see is that the things that are being done in such a creative manner by you will make Birmingham a better city for everybody. Dr. King, we don't usually Mm -hmm. hear him speaking that way. Everybody loves to hear about the dream. But Mm -hmm. in that clip, he's talking about the reality. How did that hit you at the time? that was our mission statement that was our our battle cry so that's how it strikes me you know he was telling us why we're doing this why kids are going kids and adults are going to jail um but it's all to it wasn't just about birmingham it was it was about change for the entire country that changed we spoke about george wallace you said that You heard it as a war cry, a battle cry. Right. And indeed, when these marches take place, whatever you call it, white segregationists begin to take prisoners. They begin to put people en masse into jail, including Dr. King himself. One of the more shocking moments for us was when Dad told us that Dr. King had been arrested 
it was Easter weekend, Good Friday. And that brought up, now we knew about the marchers going to jail, but we hadn't thought about Dr. King going to jail. And then Dad explained to us that that is, that was purposeful. And so, you know, again, that's, a 13-year-old, that's kind of, you know, hard for him So he was the head of this whole thing, and they need him out there marching, and yet he is purposefully going, purposefully going to jail. So it was, it was quite surprising, and also was surprising to me that it happened on Easter weekend. But again, that's the sacrifice that he talks about. That is the, um, that's what was needed to get the attention. And then Dad later brought home King, Dr. King's letter and, and want, asked my brothers and I to read it, and then, we'd have it, then we would talk about it. So that led to a really <laughs> sort of some funny family moments, mm-hmm. like my brother going, wait a minute, how did he get paper in jail, you know? <laughs> so, yes, um, which is a great to, part of the book. Yeah, to um, us really trying to understand this complex um, situation now that Dr. King is responding to these uh, white ministers that called him, uh, you know, like an interloper, you know, coming in from the outside and mm-hmm. and stirring up trouble when there was, you know, they were acting like they got they had it under control, and we knew, you know, Dr. King knew that wasn't the case, and I'm sure my dad knew that wasn't the case. While in jail, Dr. King had read an open letter to the Birmingham News written by eight white Birmingham clergymen, self-defined liberal Christians and Jews. The letter criticized his act as, quote, unwise and untimely, end quote. Alone in his jail cell, King used the newspaper margins to write a response nearly 10 pages long. This handwritten epistle dated April 16, 1963, was smuggled out of jail and circulated. Even today, it remains one of the greatest testaments of faith and conscience for all time, his letter from Birmingham City Jail. My dear fellow clergymen, he began, to their suggestion in favor of negotiation, he reiterated the four steps of his nonviolent campaign, fact-finding, negotiation, self-purification, meaning survival training for demonstrators, and direct action, marches, and demonstrations. Citing Birmingham's record as one of the South's most violent segregationist cities and noting its refusal to negotiate with black citizens in good faith, Dr. King said that direct action was mandatory. Quote, history is the long and tragic story of the fact that privileged groups seldom give up their privileges voluntarily, wrote King. He confessed that he was most disappointed not with the segregationists, but with the white moderate who, quote, paternalistically feels that he can set the timetable for another man's freedom, end quote, preferring peace to justice. But Dr. King was most eloquent and poignant on why we can't wait, a phrase that would become the title of his autobiography. With history on his side, he answered why in one sentence that included 11 passionate reasons, the most heart-wrenching of which came to him as a father trying to explain the deep hurts of racism to his own five- and six-year-old children. Over the next two weeks, Jackie, David, and I speak with Dad daily about Birmingham. We use what we're learning to write school papers. We go to the public library to do research on Dr. Martin Luther King and Birmingham. Dad helps out by bringing us home articles on Birmingham from the New York newspapers. From our work, we're becoming more familiar with terms like nonviolent resistance, justice, and oppression. On Thursday, May 2nd, Dad has troubling news. There has been a change of strategy. A young associate of Dr. King's has trained students in junior high, high school, and college in the philosophy of nonviolence, Dad tells us. 
Today, a thousand children participated in a massive protest march. I covered my mouth with my hands as if to silence a scream. Did the children march by themselves? I asked, shocked and excited by the news at the same time. I want to see that for myself. They did, Dad says. Jack, really? Children, Mom repeats. They're mostly teenagers, but it seems a few younger children march too, Dad explains. Rachel, these children are already part of the movement. Some have attended meetings with their parents at the local churches and seen their moms and dads leave the house to protest, not knowing if they'll come back home for dinner or be sitting in a jail cell. All the children have lived with signs telling them that coloreds aren't welcome in stores and restaurants and many other injustices. They've grown up only allowed to go to the fairgrounds on colored days. The children of Birmingham are fed up and want their voices to be heard. I suspect that many will march with or without their parents' permission. They're fearless. We sit down together to watch the six o'clock news. We see images of black children walking down the middle of the street singing songs. I stare into the faces of the children thinking that many of them look like they're my age. Their faces look alive, unafraid. They are laughing and singing. Ain't gonna let nobody turn me around, turn me around, turn me around. I'm familiar with these words from other marches, but this is the first time I've heard them sung by children. I tear up and a shiver travels down my neck and shoulders. Small bands of boys and girls are rounding up kids from other schools as they make their way toward the church. Thousands of students filing in the back door of the 16th Street Baptist Church and coming out to church's front door in organized groups of 50 to 100. My God, Dad mutters. I look up at my father, expecting him to say more about what we are seeing, but he just leans his elbows to his knees and stares silently at the screen. The picture shifts to children piling into police wagons and school buses. Are they going to jail, I ask, with tears spilling from my eyes. They are, Dad replies, leaning over to pat my shoulder. Jack, I thought they recruited college and high school students, Mom says, as we watch the kids being stopped by police, arrested and loaded into waiting vans and buses bound for jail. Shows you how quickly the word spread, Dad says. Rachel, do you see the determination on the faces of those children? My mother is quiet. I see it, too. The children hold their heads high and sing out loud and clear. Their feet pound the pavement and step to the music. Their picket signs read, Segregation sold here, and no dignity, no dollars. They look determined. A block and a half from the church, the police continue to lead them to waiting police wagons and school buses. The children were charged with parading without a permit, my dad says. I watch in disbelief. Could this really be happening right here in America? Here you are, a 13-year-old, and, uh -huh. you know, some of the most historic figures of the day are either in your family or they are family friends. And your dad is using his position, as you said, to be a civil rights movement fundraiser co-organizer uh -huh. at term. Uh -huh. Uh -huh. Were you ever afraid your dad was going to jail? Yes. Oh, absolutely. I mean, every time he would travel in the South, was, you know, we, we hadn't been to the South. So our only experience was seeing, you know, the television footage of trauma in the South. So, yes, I, I was very worried about that. And at that age, were you aware of the number of times your fa your father's life had been threatened for his role in, in breaking segregation in baseball? Not really. No, I didn't really come to understand that till, until later. Mm. He didn't talk about it at home, and neither did my mother. But at eight, I saw the Jackie Robinson story for the first time, and that alerted to me to the racism that was, you know, used against him when he played 
when he entered Major League Baseball. Before that, I didn't know that. People didn't talk to me about that. They talked about what a great player he was. Mm-hmm. Um, so this this more complex side of that was, uh, you know, nuanced to me um, by watching that film. But still, I didn't really understand it, and I didn't go home and say, "Dad, tell me what was that about." So it took me a long time to really understand that portion of it. One more clip. I don't think you realize down here in Birmingham what you mean to us up there in New York. And I don't think that white Americans understand what Birmingham means to all of us throughout this country. And we think about the little kids being tossed from one side of the street to the other by the tremendous force of this hose. And we think about, oh, this picture just sickens me, this big brave policeman down here with his knee on the throat of this lady. And the problem of it is, ladies and gentlemen, is that this same picture of the dogs and of this policeman with his knee in the throat of this lady, it's a picture that's being portrayed throughout the world. And I think the conscience of America is beginning to awaken. I think the first steps that were made here by the Birmingham businessmen with Dr. King and the other leaders down here is an indication that perhaps the conscience of Birmingham is beginning to awaken. The only thing that we are demanding is that we be allowed to move ahead just like any other American citizen. Wow. Had what a great you, clip. Had you heard that in a while? <laughs> in a while? I, no, I haven't heard that in a while. Um, and it's, it's always a little, little um, emotional to hear my, dad, my dad's voice. Uh, so that was great. That was a great clip. Hmm. It just seemed to be such a turning point clip for Mm -hmm. the movement, but also for the story of this young girl who is a child of the dream. Mm Mm-hmm. Yes, no, it it, it certainly does sum that up. Someone asked me about the title of the book. Mm Mm-hmm. And did I come up with the title of the book? And I was like, actually, no. I was my editor and art director at Scholastic, and... They really nailed it because that we were who they were talking about. We were that generation that still needed access and, and freedom. When you say your editor and your art director, mm-hmm. obviously you've done a phenomenal job with this book. But mm-hmm. when people can go to the website and they'll see the cover and hopefully they'll go mm. to the store and get the cover in mm-hmm. as the book itself or or wherever mm-hmm. they choose to online but it is really quite a beautiful cover and you know Janice the, the artist is, is a young woman who mm. is still in college and is still in art school oh how wonderful i did yeah know so this that. she was not the again i have this phenomenal art director at scholastic uh elizabeth parisi and great editor matt ringler and they were so in love with the story and the book. They just really went to all kinds of lengths. So she found um, the artist on Instagram. She just did black women in these really amazing uh, poses and, you know, with tears co- coming out of their hair, and it was just amazing stuff. Brittany Balmer. Yes. And she came up with this, and then uh, Elizabeth kind of, did her magic with the cover. I just love it. It just radiates. And when I first saw the cover, what struck me was that it looked like my own granddaughter. Mm, It it really did. And so Mm -hmm. it made me really focus on some of the fears that here at this time, Mm -hmm. we are still having for our children, we just listened to your dad speak about the terrible things that were happening to children. We're not seeing what he saw, but we are seeing a country that is willing to put children in cages, that is willing to, like the days of slavery, separate children from their parents. We are talking about a country that is reviving that kind of brutality. And more importantly than that kind of brutality, we're talking about a country that is reviving the mindset that will 
turn away from that brutality as though it's not a problem. But yes, we're also at a time when we are seeing children who were inspired by the March of 1963 going to Washington and yes. marching against gun violence. We are yes. seeing children who initiated climate control um, protest march. Um, so these children are, you know, they are watching what's going on and lifting their voices. And for me, that's the inspiration. That is the inspiration. And in fact, you know, Sharon, you've been to Birmingham, I don't know how recently. Uh, two weeks ago. Oh! <laughs> but I went last year, too, as well. Yes. Okay. My question yeah. is, have you met the children who now adults who were in the march? Well, that was part of my research, and the, probably the most fascinating part of my research. Uh, I, I met them first online to an online community called Kids of Birmingham in 1963. And from that, I read profiles of many kids, or, you know, adults now who were kids in 1963. But I selected two people that I wanted to talk further with. And the first one was Janice Nixon. And the reason why I like Janice's story was because she, they marched as a family, and it was led by their mother. Their mother, or you know, mobilized the ch- her children, her three children, and herself and the father. To they would go to the um, planning meetings together, march together, and then her older sister and brother actually marched in the children's march. And so Janice and I began our friendship on the telephone and have solidified it um, by meeting twice in Birmingham. She went to a, on a school visit with me just, uh, during, uh, you know, when I was on tour, book tour. Um, one, one of our, our first stops was with Birmingham, at Birmingham, Alabama, and Janice and her daughter came to that. But the other person is Dale Long, and Dale was so important because in Dale's essay, he said he talked about how his parents wouldn't let him march. But he had met my dad. He also talked about having met my dad when he was younger. And then he, you know, his point was, you know, I was upset that I couldn't march and upset that my parents felt that they were protecting me. And I told them they can't protect me from racism. That's what Dale said. Mm. Turns out Dale wasn't allowed to march at the Children's Crusade, even though he was friends, good friends with Dr. King's nephews. And they he knew all about the march and wanted to be with his friends. But he was at the 16th Street Baptist Church going to Sunday school the day it was bombed, and two of his friends were killed. Wow. So that's his, you know, both stories were, you know, and both people really helped me um, understand the, the, Ch- the Children's Crusade and life in Birmingham. The legacy of having participated on that level, how are they seeing things today? Um, you know, they, they both are trying to see things with hope. Uh, so Dale has continued. They've sort of found their niche. So Dale uh, no longer lives in Birmingham, and he lives in Texas. But he has mentored young boys primarily through the Big Sisters and Big Brothers program. And where he's had a job, he's continued to also be a mentee. And Janice, uh, Janice is just an incredible woman, uh, very devoted to her her family, but she also uh, goes to schools and talks about her sister who was uh, jailed in during the Children's March, and her, who is now, and but she, then went, and also went on to um, integrate one of the high schools. So you know, the mission continues with her through the you know, like she's become the voice for her sister who is her sister is deceased, and she's become that voice because she was the younger sister, and she's very proud of her older siblings for having marched. Um, but she t- continues to tell the story. To school kids, and what did she so say about her? Mo- yeah, she just talked about her mom with um, you know, great respect, and 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 how forceful her mom was 
and it was you know it wasn't even her it wasn't her dad that initiated them marching it was the mom but it, her mom insisted that they do it as a family when we come back more with our guest Sharon Robinson speaking about her family child of the dream a memoir of 1963 WJFF's fabulous online auction starts August 10th. Here's a great opportunity to support local businesses and Radio Catskill. Purchase a gift certificate from your favorite amazing local establishment. Then donate it to WJFF's fabulous online auction. Local businesses, promote your goods and services by donating an auction item. To donate, call 845-482-4141 or email auction at wjffradio.org. WJFF is a grassroots community radio here in the Catskills and along the Delaware River. The station is a resource for the people and by the people. A small station with a long history of community service 24 hours a day. If you agree with me, Sonia Headland, host of Ballads and Banjos, that Radio Catskill is essential to getting and staying informed, well, now's the time to make a pledge. Go to WJFFradio.org and contribute as so many others are doing. We're back with our guest, Sharon Robinson. She is the author of the book, Child of the Dream, a memoir of 1963. And what a year 1963 was for her, for her family, and for the country. The year of the Birmingham bombings and the year that children rallied in that famous children's crusade of the civil rights movement. Sharon, we've been speaking about your dad, and there is a subplot that you have going through the book of some of the challenges your older brother was going through, being Jackie Robinson Jr., Uh the son of this icon. But you had Uh two extraordinary parents. Tell us about your mom. Well, she's 97 right now to show how extraordinary she is. <laughs> <laughs> um, yes, mom was, uh, my, my mom and dad had a real partnership, and that's something they both believed in and lived by. And that partnership started before they, they got married, actually, I mean, when they were engaged. Um, but my mom also um, is somewhat very independent and very strong and very strong-willed, and uh, she had an amazing career in psychiatric nursing that mm. she started before they got married, but really um, and went back to graduate school once we were, my brothers and I were in, in you know, had gone, gone to school ourselves. So that's when my grandmother came to live with us, so my mom could go back to graduate school and kind of focus on the next, next phase of her career. So she's an, she's been extraordinary. Um, there's so much I want to ask about her. I mean, this this is a, a a rare woman portrayed in two biopics, not not just one. As right. is your as is your dad. How did your parents meet? They met at UCLA. My mom was a freshman. They were introduced by a friend. You know, she knew about Jackie Robinson because he was this big athlete, and and uh, she thought he was probably going to be arrogant and found out he wasn't. And they fell in love in those those early, you know, they were kind of last season together at UCLA and continued it after my dad um, left UCLA and my mom stayed on to graduate. So they didn't get married until after my mother had finished college and had gone on and had a, at least a year of work experience. Did they have any clue what they were signing on for when they got married? Well, a clue, um, but certainly not the depths of it. Um, you know, Branch Rickey and my father had met a couple of times, and so they sort of understood he was going to be performing under great pressure, and he understood what was expected of him, that he, uh, and it was a verbal agreement that he would not lash out with words or fists, but he would, you know, could lash out as much as he wanted, um, you know, during that first couple of years. Because uh, my dad was, you know, always stood up for himself. So, and Brent Schrenke knew that and respected that. So it wasn't like he was saying, you know, 
change who you are, but um, just in the, until we get past that first couple of years, you know, so you won't get thrown out of the game and we won't lose this historic event and changing of baseball um, by you fighting back with when you're attacked with your fist or, or with your word. So it was a tough thing for my dad, but um, he agreed and it was a verbal agreement and my parents signed on to it as a couple. And, they, and you know, Branch Rickey had made it clear, equally clear, that their partnership would be ex- essential to my dad's success, and it certainly was. There's so much I'd love to ask you, so much more I'd love to ask you, <laughs> but in this last minute that we have, yes. Sharon, uh, what has been the greatest surprise for you in the whole process of remembering, of researching, and of writing and getting the message of this book out. What's been your greatest surprise? You know, I would talk about the writing itself and or the research, but really, to me, the greatest surprise or the greatest pleasure I've gotten from this whole process is seeing the look on the girls' faces when they start to read this book. Or when I do readings in schools. I mean, the boys get it, too. It's, you know, the boys as well. But the girls, they're like, I want that book because they're offered several of my children's books. But the girls say, I want that book. So it's just what you're saying. When you saw the cover of the book, um, you thought of your granddaughter. Well, these girls are seeing themselves and they're entering adolescence. And because they hear me do a first read, they know that I, I am open and honest with them about my own anxieties about entering adolescence and they're feeling it too. So that's just, Oh, just been an amazing experience for me to watch because I've, you know, previously my other books were really geared towards boys. And that was my, my mission when I first started writing. I wanted to reach black boys in particular, Mother but boys in general, because they're, those are our troubled readers or more troubled readers. And also the but mother girls, of a son, right? And I was a mother of a son who was dyslexic and had his own troubles with reading. So he was an absolute inspiration and, and a, wonderful um, marketing partner for me with all of my books. So I miss him dearly in this process. But now that I have a granddaughter and a grandson, you know, I'm, I'm happy that I am also reaching girls in this unique way. Sharon Robinson, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank it's you, Janet. You know, it's been a great interview and really fun to be able to be interviewed by someone who knows me so well, and we've had, you know, a very long friendship. And I thank you for all your efforts on this book, because you you helped me do the initial research. And, uh, you know, I love you dearly, and congratulations on your show, and thanks for having me on. Thank you, dear friend. Today on The Janice Adams Show, our guest has been Sharon Robinson, author of the book, Child of the Dream, a memoir of 1963. Our thanks to her and to you for joining us today. For more about today's show, the music heard, and videos of some of the pivotal events of 1963, visit my website, JaniceAdams.com. That's J-A-N-U-S-A-D-A-M-S.com. From the studios of WJFF Radio Catskill, post-production Jason Dole, this show is a production of Janice Adams, LLC, All Rights Reserved. Support comes from RM Farm Real Estate, Main Street, Livingston Manor, New York. Listing and selling properties of all sizes and prices in Sullivan County and surrounding areas. rmfarmrealestate.com And from listener donations at wjffradio.org. You're listening to Radio Catskill and do you know digital? WJFF is seeking volunteers to help execute our social media and website strategies. Experience is appreciated, but training is also available. Be part of your community radio station. Join the digital team at Radio Catskill. Contact manager at wjffradio.org.
WJFF Jeffersonville, W233AH Monticello.